Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us on the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. Yes, you will hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more importantly, you're going to hear, hear real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, the goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you, yes, you, can live inspired. On today's episode, I get to introduce you to the first singer and songwriter that we've ever had on the podcast. I'm excited about it. His name is Brian Vander Ark. He's the lead singer for a band I know you remember, The Verve Pipe. His solo career includes four studio albums. In addition to writing and performing his music, he's a sought-after speaker, and he's with us today on the Live Inspired Movement. I was young, I knew everything. She a punk who rarely ever took advice Now I'm guilt-stricken, sobbing with my head on the floor Stopping baby's breath and a shoe full of rice, no Can't be held responsible She was touching her face I won't be held responsible Love in the first place For the life of me I cannot remember What made us think that we were wise And we never compromised For the life of me I cannot believe we'd ever die For these sins We were merely freshmen So my friends, are you ready? Put your hands together for our friend, Brian Vander Ark. Brian, welcome to the Live Inspired Movement. Uh, thanks so much for having me, John. Oh, man, we are delighted to have you, and uh, I understand we may even hear a little bit of music played live momentarily. You know, if the spirit moves me, uh, yes, of course, I'd love to play something. Yeah, I'm mo- always trying things out on people, by the way. I, you know, the, the fact that I'm trying things out... Uh, uh, for your listeners and, and the amount of listeners you have, it's freaking me out a little bit, but uh, I'm going to try it anyway. Well, you played uh, you played arenas this large, so I'm sure you can handle people listening in their cars, on their headphones. We, we are uh, we're delighted to have you here. For those who may not know the name Brian, and they may not have heard of the Verve Pipe, t- tell tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing today. Uh, well, you know uh, the Verve Pipe had a tremendous amount of success in the, in the nineties, uh, uh, in the late nineties as an alternative rock band. We had a big hit called the freshman. We had a couple of little hits called photograph Cup mm-hmm. of Tea, and that kind of thing. And, um, we, uh, you know, we, we stuck around for, you know, 10, 15 years there. And then we kind of broke up a little bit, but got back together and, uh, you know, things have been going awesome making music again. You, you also do some speaking. Tell me about that. I do, yeah. In fact, I found a way to rebrand myself and to perpetuate a life in music 
which is very difficult to do um, because mm. the music industry is ever changing. And, and I, I like to pose this to, uh, you know, to people when I go to speak at sales uh, conventions, that kind of thing. And I speak to a lot of bankers and that kind of stuff. But I say, you know, when's the last time you went into a record store and bought a CD, you know? Yes. And, One hand know, goes up. That's, that's right. That's, that's the problem that I have. And I'm able to still... Uh, have a life in music, and uh, and I just go through, uh, you know, what my history was, and and where I where I'm going in the future, and how I make it work. Well, the awesome thing is, then this will be a very easy podcast because that's all we do. We we talk about Great. people's histories, the lessons <laughs> learned, the mistakes made, how they're better versions of themselves today because of it. Yeah. Brian, I think you know everybody's got a story. It's just not the story we're telling the world. So today on the Live Inspired Podcast, we want to hear yours. T- tell us. Where you grew up, what family was like for you as a kid? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in a very, very uh, strict Christian Reformed home in West Michigan, uh, where it's mostly Dutch um, and uh, very, very, um, uh, I had parents who were very supportive of my of music, but not necessarily secular music. They wished that I would have went into Christian music, um, but I had always fancied myself a uh, a songwriter, singer-songwriter, and I got my first gig playing at the Holiday Inn bars. <laughs> I was the kid sitting in the corner taking requests, you know. People would yell out, play, you know, Cat Stevens, and I'd play Cat Stevens, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, and then I ended up, uh, I, I did that for about a year, and I didn't really have um, the worldly knowledge that a songwriter needed to have to actually write quality material. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I decided that, when my friends were going to go backpack across Europe, I was going to uh, go backpack across Europe, but I was going to get paid to do it. Uh, and so I joined the army. Uh, <laughs> and so I saw Europe through the eyes owned by the government and they owned my eyes for four years. Yes. And then I, uh, and then from there I came right back out with all that knowledge and I went right back to the holiday Inn and I begged for my job back. Essentially, well, they—I think they owned more than just your eyes, but we're—we're we're not going to yeah. unpack everything else right now. <laughs> but before we talk about the Holiday Inn and the Army and the experiences of Europe, which I am sure informed how you show up today, uh, tell me about growing up, man. Like, w- what's the household like? How many siblings? Uh, you mentioned you your know, parents we were had, pretty strict. We had five kids, um, so uh, quite quite a lot of uh, activity going on in the house. We all. Uh, we all liked different things. My oldest brother loved music. My second oldest, uh, um, he uh, he was an athlete. I had a little bit of both. I was I wasn't a I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't a great musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a younger sister, the only girl. Uh, and then I have a youngest, uh, my youngest brother Brad, who was also in the Verve Pipe with me uh, years later. But we were, um, like I said, you know, I mean, it, you know, small town uh, Michigan, Middleville, Michigan. We lived on Barlow Lake. Uh, oddly enough, this is a lake uh, that in the summer on Sundays, we weren't allowed to swim in. That's how strict uh, our upbringing was. You couldn't swim on Sundays. And so there was, you know, this constant uh, back and forth between uh, between myself and my parents. And because I was a little bit more rebellious than the rest of the kids, I got in a little more trouble than anybody, anybody else at school. And Brian, um, for, the, for the listeners who may not even know what not swimming on a Sunday, it, was there a chemical plant dumping stuff in there? What, what, <laughs> no, what, what's the reason why this boy can't go swimming on a Sunday on a hot Michigan afternoon? 
this is because, uh, you know, I'll tell you too, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the real reason. And then I'll tell you the reason that my brother told me. (laughs) The real reason was because we were uh, Christian and Sunday was a day of rest and you didn't do anything. You stayed in your Sunday clothes. You went to church in the morning, you went to Sunday school after church, and then you stuck around in the entire day in your, uh, you know, in your nice suit and you weren't allowed to get sweaty or anything. It was the day of rest. And then you were to go, then we had to go to church again at night, uh, at six o'clock at night after dinner. So there was no swimming at all on Sunday. Now, uh, my brother, I asked my brother when I was little, I asked my brother, why is it that we can't swim on Sunday? And he, and he told me that, uh, we had, we were a Protestant family. Um, and there were, there were a family of Catholics that lived on the lake as well. And if you, and the Catholics were allowed to swim. So if you went swimming on Sunday and the Catholics happened to be swimming on Sunday, you might accidentally be baptized <laughs> into the Catholic Church. In their Church. faith. And they sure don't want you to be baptized by the O'Leary's. I don't blame them. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so honestly, that's, you know, th- this is what I grew up in. I, and, and to this day, I still struggle with, you know, faith and God and, you know, what it all means and everything. But, uh, you know, uh, but that was that was essentially my upbringing. Uh, I was a bit of a uh, of a rebel, which I encourage my own kids to be yeah. <laughs> just enough of a re- rebellion in the house for them to be creative and artistic. You know, when you go to uh, Europe, not on the tour that I was expecting you were going to say next, but on a four year tour, where Uncle <laughs> Sam guided every every song you sang. Uh, tell me what that experience was was like as a young Michigan kid. You know, it honestly, it, uh, first of all, you know, to, to be, uh, to leave home, having only been on an airplane once in my life, uh, right after graduation, I went down to Florida for a couple of days. Um, that was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. So we didn't travel at all when I was a kid. Um, and to actually go from that to joining an army, uh, being with such a diverse group of people in the army, uh, it's very, it was very white middle class where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Uh, and so it was a bit of a culture shock, but you know, you don't really have any time to adjust, uh, you know, adjust to that kind of thing. You just have to adjust right away or you get screamed at when you join the army. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. Right. Um, so I, you know, I, for, I, for whatever reason, I joined the army at that time. It was, it was really, um, like I said, for the, for the money and the travel, uh, and the college money. Um, you know, there were many things about it that were terrific for me. Um, the terrific thing about it was it really helped me get things squared away in my mm-hmm. life. I mean, it really taught me to get up early and get things done and, and to be more meticulous about things and that kind of thing. And the bad things about it were everything that you would fear as an artist was, was stripped away. And there was no individuality whatsoever. You, yes. you were part of this team and you were just another cog in this wheel. Uh, and that, you know, and you couldn't do anything to, you know, to, um, to make yourself known uh, outside of that wheel. Um, and as a, you know, as a creative person, that was very, very difficult. You know, I, I would we'd constantly be punished to have my guitar taken away from me, you know, yes. uh, for months at a time, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but looking back on it, though, I would probably would not encourage my kids to go into the military. I, I think that it was the perfect, uh, perfect thing for me. It was the, it was the right thing to do. And I do have a, a I think I have a richer uh, life for having done that for sure. Do you think, and I'm, I, I don't know if I've ever asked this question before. Do you think you have a greater appreciation for the flag for your freedoms, for other 
things that we see on our money or whatever else that maybe those who may not have served may take for granted? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I would say that I'm more patriotic. I'm probably one of the more patriotic artists or creative yeah, yeah. people out there. Uh, I can't help but get a bit of a chill. Uh, at the national anthem, when, when you've got a stadium full of people, you know, standing up, that kind of thing, I teach my kids to be respectful of it. Um, and uh, so I would, say, I would say that's true, yes. You know, I, I, played a, I, I do house concerts on occasion. I played a house concert of a, a, of a colonel down in Florida, in Orlando, and he gave me a flag uh, as a gift, a flag that was flown over, uh, an American flag that he flew in a jet over Afghanistan. And, uh, and I, I treasure that flag. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. So, yes, these are things that I probably wouldn't feel the same had I not served. Um, but, you know, I don't really take advantage of the benefits that the veterans take advantage of. And, and it really, uh, when my, my kid, on Veterans Day, uh, I have young kids, you know, uh, my daughter, who's in first grade, everybody else was having their uh, veteran fathers, grandfathers, or mostly grandfathers, come in. And they, they would come in, and they got treated very nicely in front of this assembly, and they all stood up and, and were saluted. And I was like, I, you know, I just didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. I didn't feel right. right. I didn't feel like, you know, these are guys that had been to, you know, been to war. And, and I was in during peacetime. I was in a fairly peaceful time, 83 to 87, you know, the Reagan years, and wasn't really anything going on. So, but I did it for my daughter's sake, and I felt a little embarrassed by it. But, you know, I mean... People still say, you know, listen, you served and uh, you didn't have to serve. It, we, you know, it wasn't a mandatory <laughs> military well, that we're and in. And I would so. agree with them. <laughs> I, I do some work now with wounded veterans, and uh, a lot of the staff that does the work with me are men and women who graduated from service. And, and yeah. the way the men and women who are injured look at the, the teachers, these instructors, they, they don't care whether or not they were serving in Afghanistan, Iraq, or Germany in the early 80s. I think they right. viewed them as men and women bold enough to raise their hands, step forward, take an oath, and commit themselves to a cause bigger than themselves. And I, I, I would credit you, man, for doing that back in 1983 or whatever the year was. I got to say, I, I thank you for that credit, and yet still, I beat myself up a little bit because I, you know, to be completely honest, which you know we, we discussed earlier, we're going to be completely honest here. I still feel a little guilty that that wasn't the reason I went in. I went in as an 18 year old who really wanted the money, who wanted the college money, who really had no future other than you know playing, uh, you know, playing music and making a little bit of money here and there. But uh, I didn't go in it for noble purposes, and 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 I still have to beat myself up <laughs> about it a bit, you know. Well, well sometimes you, you you do one thing, because, because, you know, maybe for arrogance, ego, music, whatever yeah. it may be, but something even bigger shows up, and I, I think that that is what sure. happened during your journey. You come yeah. home. You're back at the Holiday Inn. You're playing Cat Stevens again, man. You're rocking the house. There's 11 people just freaking loving you. Most of them have purple hair, and they're 72 or older. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Take us forward from there. Uh, from there, I uh, had a buddy who was a, uh, he was a DJ at a country station, and he was going to meet uh, and interview Willie Nelson, and he asked me if I wanted to come along. And I said, yeah, that sounds like something. And I and I, I had a few songs that I've written. I, I put together a demo tape of a song I'd written for the American Farmer. Um, and I get because of Farm Aid, he does. And I went, I went and I met Willie and he was uh, went up on his boss and, and spoke with him. And, and he was gracious. He took my 
he took my demo and uh, and he promised he would listen to it. And I left that bus with this great feeling of uh, admiration and empowerment. Yes. And well, I could have, that might have had something to do with the air on Willie's bus, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but, but the fact I'm not that, even going to ask the question, tell me more. I mean, we'll, we'll have the listeners turning off in droves if you unpack what you saw on Willie's bus. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, you know, Willie called me a few days later. And he said he listened to the demo and he wanted me to uh, come and play at Farm Aid 4. So I went down wow. in 1990 and I went down to Indianapolis and played at the, it was called the Hoosier Dome at that point. Um, so I played, you know, I went from playing in front of 20, you know, 20 people a night at the Holiday Inn to playing in front of 20,000, you know, disinterested people at the Hoosier Dome. But, uh, but I only played the one song. And so I knew that I had to come back and like really like work on some material. Mm -hmm. And and that's when I started to really roll up my sleeves and start to uh, lock myself down uh, from the outside world and write, you know, get into my creative closet, I like to call it. And, um, and that's when I started writing and, and uh, had to form a band to, uh, to go out and play these songs and, uh, and formed a local band and never looked back, you know. So I'll have three questions coming out of this. The first is, tell me about the creative process. Like, uh, whether you're a speaker, you're uh, in podcasting, you're you're, you're making the home, whatever it is, we're all part of, we we create something through our lives. And yet you're an artist. You really are creating something out of nothing. Words, music, tone, percussion, all this stuff. Take us through that process of creating something where, where there was nothing. Sure, absolutely. Um... I can tell you when I first started doing it, uh, I had to find, um, I had to lock, I, had, I found that I had to lock myself up somewhere <laughs> and be away. And literally I would lock myself into our storage unit, uh, which was the band storage unit. Uh, it was powered. So I, I actually lived there for about 10 days, uh, writing, writing, writing music. Um, and that's all I did. And, you know, it was disgusting. There's no bathroom, no kitchen or anything. Uh, and in those days, that's the only thing I could do to get myself into the right headspace to write. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you don't, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't leave my family and go live in a storage unit for 10 days. Uh, so over, over the course of this much of a lifetime, 25 years, 30 years of writing, I, I now have tricks uh, that get me into it. And I know how to get to uh, the quality of art that I need to get to, or that I want to get to, or that I strive to get to. Uh, you know, even with kids running yes. around yelling upstairs in the background and that kind of thing. Well, th- um, let's talk about that because I, I don't think any of our listeners, myself included, want to do the, the storage unit thing. So, w- <laughs> yeah. with the kids running around and life happening, how do you how do you create today, Brian? Well, I mean, one I'll tell you this: I'll get off track just a little bit, but. One thing that I learned to do is, uh, you know, eight years ago, I started writing kids' music as well. And so my kids would say something funny, and I go, oh, no, this, would be, this would be a great song. And I, you know, the Verve Pipe made two kids' records, and, and more people show up, up at our kids' rec- <laughs> uh, kids shows now. I, seriously, like 5,000 kids show up at yes. our kids' shows. It's ridiculous because uh, parents are hungry for rock and roll for kids, you know. I mean, good good quality four-part harmony rock yes. and roll. Uh, so I found a way to make that adjustment to stay creative, too. But Really, what it comes down to is when the house is quiet enough or when I'm out about with talking to people or, or hearing their stories, when I do house concerts or do speaking or that kind of thing, I pay attention. I listen to what's going on in the world. I listen to what's going on in my world, 
and I look for things and something will jump out at me and say, well, that's, that's a great story. And that story should be in a song and I'll make it my own in some way. Um, So I'm inspired by people. uh, And I don't know how, I don't know how other artists do it that uh, lock themselves up and can't, uh, you know, after this much, uh, this much time and this, this, this many songs that I've written. Um, But the process, it really is about me hearing a melody in my head, which is an, uh, an amalgam of, of different songs I'm sure I've heard over my, the course of my 52 years, and uh, changing notes around and, and figuring out what the song is and sitting down with a guitar and plucking out the melody that's been in my head forever uh, and, uh, and going from there and then looking through notebook after notebook of notes that I've taken, of uh, phrases that people might have said and, and stories mm-hmm. people might have told and figuring out what the story is. You know? Do you keep and a journal? Sometimes it happens. I do absolutely keep a journal. Yeah, I have to keep a journal for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, I would say at least half of the songs that I write then are, are not good songs. They're right. crap, you know, and I'll record a demo one day and I'll say, this is the greatest thing ever. And I listen to it a couple of days later and go, this is just garbage. I don't know why I thought this was any good. Right. And the problem is too, you know, if you have a couple of, a couple of drinks or something, I'll get home late night. I, I'm not ready to go to bed. I'll, I'll, I'll mess around in the studio and, and write something. And then the next day I'll go, but this is just garbage. I can't, I can't write when I've, when I've had a drink or two, you know? Yes. So it really has to happen, uh, somewhat in an organic way. Uh, but there also is a lot of preparation, um, involved in that and really is stockpiling ideas. Uh, and when I, when it's time to write, I I go to the ideas and, and, uh, flush it all out. I mentioned there were going to be three questions. The first is the process. The second is the people, How'd you form the band? Who'd you invite in? Uh, well, it really was, it was people I knew from work. You know, I, I worked retail as well. You know, I worked at a retail store. I used to string tennis rackets for the sporting goods store. And then I would write songs in the back room, by the way. That's a whole nother, that's a book. Uh, but uh, I worked with a couple of guys that played instruments. They say, hey, you play guitar. I play, you know, I play guitar. And uh, hey, I know this drummer, whatever. And then you get together and you try to make things work. And when it clicks, it clicks. And you go out and you play some gigs. And, and I did that with a band we called uh, Johnny with an Eye. And there was another band in town that was called Water for the Pool. Water for the Pool. They were a big Michigan band. And they got to play all the weekends. You know, and we played like the Tuesday 25 cent draft beer nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I approach, but you know, everybody goes out on those nights. So we got a following really quickly. So I approached a couple of members of that band and I said, look, I've got these songs. I got a dozen songs. Would you ever consider breaking up our respective bands, taking the best players, and going in the studio and recording an album? Uh, and the, the two guys, the drummer and guitarist agreed and we went into the studio and we formed, that's when we formed our band, the Verve Pipe. And then we, you know, borrowed $5,000 and, and recorded an album in a really inexpensive studio. And, and we sold about 15,000 copies. And then we took some of that money and we made another album. We sold about 25,000 copies of that album. So the band had only been together for about a year and already we were making three or $400,000. Which got the attention of the record labels. That was my question. So when did it go from being a nice Michigan band to being something that I would have heard in St. Louis and my friends would have been rocking out to with me? Yeah, well, that, you know, RCA came out a few times and um, finally penned the deal with us. And that's when I locked myself up in that storage space and wrote the songs, the demos for them. And then they sent us with $250,000 to San Francisco to work with Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads, who was on a hot streak as a producer. 
and he produced our album, Villains. Does she nick you for her falsities? Advantage is my only masterpiece. Penny is poison, but I don't mind. And, uh, and then from there, what typically happens is uh, a record label needs about three months to set up a record. Um, you know, to go to MTV and play, get your video played and go to radio stations, get your song played. And while they do that, the band goes and plays a bunch of crappy shows in places you've never been because you're trying to build a national following. And that's when we got the call from uh, the manager of the band, Kiss. You know this band? I've not heard of the band Kiss, but I'm sure they're, you know, I'm sure they're probably worth knowing. Probably I'm joking. If if, you're li- if our listeners don't know Kiss, they're tuning into the wrong podcast. Okay, these guys it's love ridiculous. Kiss, man. So yes, we all know uh, Kiss. But the funny thing is, is that we were. I was a huge Kiss fan. You know, I had I had the Kiss pillowcases. Yes, <laughs> you know, Kiss my, Barbie dolls, man. They were huge, 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 ridiculous. And uh, you know, they Kiss had heard an advanced copy of that album of ours from RCA, and they asked us if we wanted to go and play with them open up for them for 30 dates. And of course, you yeah, know, yeah. we absolutely will go and open for kids and play in front of 25,000 people. But that was a, that was a big mistake. They, it was a, it was a terrible experience. Tell me about that. Yeah, it, 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 well, it was the worst. I mean, you, if you imagine 25,000 people in any given city, waiting to see kids, yes. you know, waiting for kids to put the makeup back on. This is in 1996, you know, when they went back out on tour with the original guys and 25,000 people, you know, go to an arena and wait outside of an arena for two hours, and they let 25,000 people in an arena, and then 25,000 people, when the lights go down, 25,000 people roar in anticipation of seeing Kiss, and then the lights come up on stage. Brian Vander Ark, and they're yeah. like, what? Stupid band. Like, oh, That's God, right. They were terrible to us. We got spit on. We got booed. It was an awful 30 minutes for 30 days. Uh and it was really tough, but, you know, we never got booed off the stage. We stayed and we played our show, and it taught me to never fear another crowd, that's for sure. Um, that's a really but, you know, interesting story, man. I mean, it really was an experience that I never thought I would have as a kid uh, growing up. And and the fact is, is that we got to go to Europe with Kiss. So I went from being in the Army, going to Europe, you know, and living in Europe in the Army, the next time I set foot in Europe, you know, I was a, I was in a, I was a, hopefully a rock and roll star, you know, at that point. Uh, so it was a, you know, listen, it came full circle for me. <laughs> you, you, a little bit different being in a rock band than being in the army in Europe, however. I would imagine the the transition from being almost booed off the stage to uh, being yeah. a front runner and a headliner on the stage. Uh, yeah. What, what what changed in between those two pieces? Well, you know. Um, my ego inflated. That was one major change. Uh, yes. You know, we had uh, we had a number a number five song called Photograph. That was the first song that came out. And if you want beautiful, beautiful, hide me in a picture. And then we had our Ace in the Hole, which was the Freshman, which was the number one song. Did you did you know uh, that was an Ace when you wrote it and, and performed it, or did that just end up blowing up? Not when I not when I wrote it. Uh, when I performed it the very first time, I I didn't know it well enough, and I made mistakes uh, in the lyrics, and and I ended up singing nonsense, and where the members of the band knew it, uh, and made fun of me afterwards. But I had some of the memorable memorable lines from the song 
there's lines that say, for the life of me, I cannot remember what made us think that we were wise and we'd never compromise. Yeah. People, people uh, came up afterwards and said, what was that song about compromise and all and na- their name and little things that I did remember. And I thought, Oh, this might be something. Yeah. There might be something here, you know? And, uh, and I think RCA knew that all along. I think that was the reason that they picked us up and they, they be, because by the time RCA came out to see us play, you know, we were playing in front of cl- in clubs in front of 500 people and every one of those people were singing the, all the lyrics to the song. Mm. So, you know, that, that's when things changed. That's when the song was number one, where we got the bragging, we were bragging cause we'd knocked you two off the number one spot. And, uh, and we felt like we were kings. I mean, we really were on top of the world. And that set up a great, a great long fall. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about the, uh, the ego that comes with success, because you seem like a humble guy from childhood. You certainly are today. And then you have a number one, uh, and, and life changes dramatically for you. Well, uh, give us some examples of how dramatically different your life was after the number one than maybe before. What would, would people recognize you on the streets? Were they, uh, just going oh, yeah. crazy at the venues? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I can, I can sum up what the, uh, I can't, so I, I, you know, the, the ego thing happens to you, uh, without you knowing it. Hmm. But when I look back on it, uh, in hindsight, I see where that moment was that I can, I can, um, I can pinpoint a moment where, wow, I was really out of touch. And that was, we were going to play a show in Portland. It was a sold out show, uh, which back then was a theater. So it was probably a couple thousand people had bought tickets. And I wasn't going to get on the plane to go because they had switched planes and I went from an aisle seat to a middle seat Mm. and I was not going to get on that plane. And my manager called me and said, you really need to get some perspective here. There's 2000 people waiting for you. They've got a babysitter. They're going out. They bought tickets. You need to get on that plane. And at the time I, I didn't even care. I didn't even think twice about it. I said, whatever, you know, this is just the way Now I ended up going, of course. And it was, you know, successful show. But when I look at that now, I go, that, who was that guy? That guy was not me. You know, this was not the kid that grew up in Middleville, Michigan. And uh, and certainly not the guy now that, you know, who, uh, who goes into people's homes uh, (laughs) and plays, you know, it sits over in front of the fireplace and plays a concert for 30 or 40 people, you know, it's not the same guy. So I'm glad you you returned to that 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 guy. Oh, so am I. Believe me, I still insist on an aisle or a window. Yeah, Brian, I'm, I'm on the aisle, man. So you can sit next to me in the middle seat anytime, and we'll rock out together. Hey, it's so funny because my wife and I, when we travel now, you know, and and we, you know, of course, our seats are always next to each other. So one of us has got to get the middle seat, and I always say, "Darling, please, you take. Let me take the middle seat. I'll take the middle seat." And uh, boy, that's something. When you're really truly in love, that's love right there, man. I sense a song coming love. out of this. Uh, <laughs> the middle seat it's going to be a hit yeah there you go see right there that's a song that's that is a song when so i have the opportunity of presenting at audiences from three girl scouts to twenty thousand consultants uh and yet for me there's there's buzz when the energy is with me like i just feel myself speaking and uh inspiring i think even more effectively when they when they're all in and that's speaking Mm -hmm. i would imagine when you're singing and you're jamming and you're dancing back and forth that it's a conversation that you as a musician you're having with your audience 
is that a correct assumption? Is, is it hard to perform when the audience doesn't care? No, uh, it's not. That To answer that last question first, it's not hard to perform when the audience isn't there. Um, because I'll tell you what, it is when, uh, when I'm by, on my own. When I'm with the band, we're, we're a band and we're a team and we feel great and we play to each other. Um, and we're communicating to each other uh, as much as we're communicating to the audience. And I think all good bands do that. I don't think good bands just go out right. and play their show, wrote memorization, play the same set every night. We try new things. We do different things. We, sh- we shake things up. We'll, we'll try a cover song in, in just for fun in sound check. Mm-hmm. And we'll go out and try our own version of it just for fun. And, and we'll mess up and we'll laugh and we'll have a good time, that kind of thing. Uh, so, but a solo, yes, yeah, solo, it's difficult. It's very difficult to do it. Uh, it's, uh, difficult. You, you, you end up thinking thoughts while you're playing, like, why yes. am I doing this? Yes. I, can't, <laughs> yes. I can't play to this oil painting of a crowd. We call them, you know, there's, they're, they're, you know, they're applauding. They're very polite and they're, they seem to be listening, but I'm not getting anything back from them, mm-hmm. you know, and I need to, I need that kind of energy. You know, when you play in front of, when you play in front of, uh, 50 people, at a house concert, most times you have them right there. They're captivated. You can, you can make it a conversation with them because you can talk between songs and you can ask people questions yes. and, and that kind of thing. And you're having a conversation with the room. But when you're playing in a club, you don't have that ability to do that. Most people are waiting for you to play the hit, the hit song. Uh, and, uh, and that's a difficult, uh, that's a difficult thing to overcome when you're the only one up there. That's for sure. Brian, what's it like being on stage as a Michigan kid for uh, army grad and you start playing, and as you go into the first word, the audience, the crowd, a stadium full of teenagers and twenty-five-year-olds are singing back your song, your songs, and your words. What, what's it's, what's it's, that like? The first time you really get the buzz. It's a tremendous, tremendous feeling. In fact, I can strike the first chord of the song, and people will know immediately right. what it is. And when that happens, and you hear uh, the gasp and the you know and the buzz and the room and the energy is lifted, and this is the song that a lot of people came to see, um, it, there's no other feeling like it. And and you know I get asked all the time when I'm on the road, you know, do you ever, especially at the speaking gigs, you know, do you ever get sick of playing that song? And <laughs> yeah. I have to honestly say, you know, you think that I would, but I don't because it is a go-to. It's the touchstone of the set. A lot of times, if I'm having a bad set. If I'm not communicating well with the audience and the audience isn't giving me any energy, I know I can look down at the set list and go, okay, I got four yeah, more songs. More. And I'm right. definitely going to have them. I'm going to have them at that moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, and then they're probably going to check out <laughs> again if they weren't there in the beginning. Now, the nice thing about it is that I think the solo shows um, is that I'm a storyteller and I, I like to tell stories and, uh, and I know the value of a good story. And, uh, and I put stories in my songs, and I have a lot of fans that want to hear the stories and want to hear the story songs. So it doesn't happen very often where I play a show, unless it was advertised as Brian Vanderark of the Verve Pipe, and then they're yes. advertising the freshman on the radio and that kind of thing. And I show up to a gig I've never been to an area where they don't know the solo stuff, and, and they're just waiting right, you know, for me to song. get to the song. That's the tough that's the tough thing, but I'm never, never sick of playing it because it brings so much joy to people. Well, and how, can I, you be, how can you be tired of that, of something like that, that you know that you're going to do that's going to bring people back to 1996 or 1998 or whatever it was right? Uh, and bring so much joy, you know? 
I, I've been looking forward to this since I found out that we were going to be able to bring you on the show. Rather than playing the freshman, which people can YouTube or download or anything else they want to do, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that for the first time in the history of the Live Inspired podcast that one of our guests can play some live music. So if you're open to it, Brian, I'd love for you to play any of the songs that you, you move you. Give us a little bit of the backstory and, and then take us through the song. Yeah, uh, sure thing. I will. Um, I'd like to play you. I think I'm going to play you a song that uh, that I wrote uh, a few years ago. This was when I was in the Verve Pipe, and it's on my solo records. On the first solo record I did, it's a song called "Twelve Twenty Nine Sheffield," which is an address, but also "Twelve Twenty Nine is the <clears throat> is the moment that uh, apparently the um, the last lights of the Titanic were seen wow. <laughs> as it was the ship was going down. And the song is you know it's a metaphor for the relationship. Uh, so I thought I'd play you that. Um, if I could, it's got a little bit of a story to it. And it's probably not going to sound that great over the phone. I can t- honestly say this is the first time that I've ever played anything over the phone for anybody. Uh, so, so Brian Vander Ark from the Verb Pipe, now solo artist. Something he's never done before, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to be playing over the phone. So it's going to be a little uh, muffly. But I think that's part of the deal. So, Brian, when you're ready, man, rock and roll and, and uh, take the song Sounds forward. Good. Sounds good. Hold on one second. Another day of deflating your face into tears I shook the mood with a game and a bottle of beer Woo! Not sure how that came out. Get your hands together for Brian <laughs> Vanderark, soloist, uh, playing from his own studio into the living, living inspired studio. Brian, it was awesome, man. Thank you for playing oh, that. I hope that came across all right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it came across muffled like it should, and, and but we we heard heard it perfectly, and I'm grateful for oh, it. Uh, to tell me the, the, the song sounds in some regards uh, like a mix between darkness and light, man. It's a, a little a tension really between is. love and and uh, and loss. Well, there is, um, you know, that's, that's my forte, I think. Um, you know, there is, it's one of the saddest songs I think I've written, but it's, you know, there's, uh, it's peppered in a lot of things that I think a lot of people feel in the reality of a relationship, you know, having, uh, you know, being in a relationship and being married for, you know, 12 years or, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, you know, those little pet names that yes. you give each other and then you do get a pet and you say, well, let's just call the pet that pet. Name. That's right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> These are little things that people do. Uh, and returning, you know, I remember as a kid returning, uh, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, being a bit of an alcoholic back then, um, you know, the returning bottles thinking, hey, I can buy, you know, we can now buy more beer. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> so drink, drink it up. Let's go. We'll go back. We'll go buy another beer, another, you know, 40 ounce or whatever. You know, these are things uh, that happen in the in a young relationship, especially um, when you can't, or especially when you stay in your neighborhood and you, you know, you do what your parents did and that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I, I write a lot of relationship, uh, a lot of relationship songs um, and stories, short stories, that kind of thing. So, Brian, when you when you were with the Verve Pipe, and I know you still are, but when it was at the the, the high point of your success, mid nineties, sure. Uh, number one, you got a number five. Things are just cranking. Did, I, I'm assuming, as an arrogant young man, you were pretty sure this is just the way your new life is. It's always going to be number ones. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You never. 
you, you know, there are, you know, you're, you're on the rock and roll highway and there are billboards that are telling you, don't fall into this cliche. Yes. You know, don't do this. Don't do this along this highway. And we followed every one of those cliches. Uh, we really did. We became way too big for our britches, as my mom would say. Uh, you know, the next album that we made after the big successful album that sold, you know, we sold uh, you know, two million records. Um, the next album, we spent $1.2 million recording it as opposed to the $5,000 yes. of our very first record, you know, because it was all excess and it was, you know, yes. we could have anything we wanted in the studio. We were a number one hit songwriting band. Uh, and then that album went on to sell maybe 17, 18,000 copies total. It was just a terrible failure. And, you know, we, we, before we had played David Letterman uh, mm -hmm. and, and uh, the tonight show uh, this particular album, we had we had a spot on Saturday Night Live, and it and it was taken away from us because of the the, the terrible uh, record sales. So, listen, <laughs> it was a slap in the face that I certainly needed. That's for sure. What, what, um, tell me what you, you need that. What did you learn about yourself during the successful times? And the follow up question is going to be: What did you learn about yourself during the during the downfall? Um, you learn that. Uh, that you're human, um, that you make, you make mistakes, that uh, you learn that you have to rely on yourself. Um, and you can't point the finger, you can't blame, in my, in my circumstance, I can't point the finger at the record label for dropping the ball because I handed them a, you know, a, a 500 pound bowling ball that was yes. covered in grease. I mean, there was no opportunity uh, for them to do anything. So, um, really what I had to do was I had to get, uh, get myself back to a place where I could, uh, be humble again and, and that humility. And what I ended up doing was buying a, I sold all my goods. I sold everything, my guitars, my condo, I bought to party in. I, I sold that. I bought an RV, a crappy old RV. And I went and I traveled the country with my guitar and just played coffee houses and whatever little bars would have me. And, and uh, made another record, a solo record that that song you just heard was on, and mm -hmm. uh, went out and 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 sold you know ten thousand copies of that album on my own with no record label, and and then then I realized this is what I was meant to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this. It's about the process. It's about your life. You're having a life, and it's about the artistic process. Uh, something that my wife has taught me as an artist um, is that it isn't just about the commerce. It's about enjoying what you're doing and finding a way to do it and finding a way to live your life and be creative. Mm. And that's what we try to teach our kids. And Man, when I, I do my speaking engagements too, I, I, I talk about the right brain and the left brain. And I tell people, even in what, no matter what business you're in, it's very important to, uh, to nurture the right side of your brain, which is the creative side. You have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box because the world is ever changing. Uh, you have to find your own storage space, you know, you know no, no, storage unit, no matter where yes. that is in your in your house, or even if you get into your own head and meditate, that kind of thing. And you know, I, I, on occasion, honestly, I can I can feel the eyes rolling in the room sometimes when I start to talk in artistic terms. Uh, but the fact is, is that I'm a businessman as well. And uh, and like I said before, when when people look at themselves and say, "Well, when is the last time that I bought actually bought an album?" They can realize that, hey, I've got to. I've got to use the left side of my brain too. Uh, and the combination of the two uh, sides of the brain is a very valuable uh, tool to have. That's for sure.
Brian, you play at houses, conferences, auditoriums, arenas still. Where can people learn more about your music, your book, your speaking? Uh, the best thing to do, of course, is to go to brianvanderark.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-V-A-N-D-E-R-A-R-K.com. Uh, and also theverfpipe.com. We're very active in the social media. So we're, we're on Facebook every day, uh, facebook.com slash, you know, Brian Vanderark or the Verf Pipe. They can look us up. And uh, we interact with the fans uh, daily. Um, and uh, the, the up-to-the-minute uh, news is, is always up on Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram and the whole thing. So, so Brian, on uh, the heels of the interview, we always take our guests, whether they are live musicians playing in studio or uh, you know, business owners, authors, whatever it may be, through seven questions. We call it the, the Live Inspired Seven. So you will be walking in well-trotted-upon steps, and I'd like to kick you off with the first question, which is, what is the best book that you've ever read? And today, I'll ask part two, which is, what's the best song, Brian, that you think is, is out there, period? What's your favorite song? And so what's oh, the best funny. best book you've ever read? Uh, and then secondly, because you are, an ar- you are an artist, what's the best song you've ever personally heard? I love... I love Steinbeck, and I love um, The Winter of Our Discontent. I've always loved that book. I loved it. Um, And I identify with the main character. um, And the... uh, And there are are things in that book that uh, that I really value. Um, And I could read it. I've read it, you know, 20, 25 times probably over the course of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, A song for me... I think God Only Knows by the Beach Boys is probably the most perfect song uh, for me that, that I've ever listened to. I mean, it's just, there, there's, there's so much in that song. Uh, there's so much heartbreak in the voice, even though it's a beautiful love song. You mm-hmm. know? It's just like, a, and then, you know, the changes in it are dramatic and with the orchestra and things happen that are unexpected. And, and then the key changes and the, you know, uh, Brian Wilson is just a genius. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not a huge Beach Boys guy. I'm not, the, especially not the early stuff. I was more of a Beatles guy, but I got to say, that's probably the most beautifully crafted song ever written. Brian, tomorrow you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103 years of age. Shocking. <laughs> Leaving you with millions, man. What would you do yeah. with this newfound wealth? I would immediately put it in a safe place. <laughs> <laughs> I would contact my brother, my older brother, Jeff, who is the athlete. He's also an uh, he's, brilliant accountant and uh, marketing guy. I would give it most of it to him. Uh, then I would take my wife and my family on a nice little European vacation and enjoy a couple of weeks of traveling because I didn't get to do that when I was a kid. And I want my kids to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would save most of it. I know it's so boring, but honestly, having had millions and yes. lost millions, that, that's an easy, easy answer. Uh, well, that money ends up multiplying again. who we are. It doesn't change us. It just multiplies. And so if you it's come true. into millions at a young age, frequently you will figure out a way to spend millions at a young age. That's exactly right. So I'm glad you sold the condo, and I'm glad you're giving this money to your accountant brother. Uh, <laughs> if your house caught fire and all living things, this, your children, your spouse, all living things, your animals, uh, they're all out of the house, so they're safe. But you have an opportunity yep. to run in and grab one thing. What would you run back in that house for? I would, I, I didn't even hesitate. 
I would grab, we have a painting by an artist named Lawrence Carroll, who's just an amazing artist. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with him and he painted a picture for us. Um, and uh, it's, it's specific to my family and, and he painted it exactly for us. And he's a world famous artist. Uh, and we have that painting and it hangs in our living room. And that is, I would absolutely go in and grab that painting. So we're, we're going to put a picture of that painting on our, uh, our profile page on the show notes. Cause I want to make sure people understand what you, what you just ran back in for. Cause I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by the art that turns people on. And I, I personally look forward to seeing that. So I look forward to getting with you after the show and uh, having that picture. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day, just perfect, yeah. and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that conversation with? This is going to sound really cheesy. Honestly, nobody in this world inspires me or interests me as much as my wife. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's so cheesy, but it's true. Man, so I have to say, I, if I'm gonna, I, I get when I'm with somebody who's uber famous. And I have to, I have to explain this because I'm really not that cheesy of a guy, but I have to have people understand this. When I'm with somebody who's really famous, I'm intimidated. I, 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 I can't talk. I can't figure out what to say. I'm thinking, oh my god, I finally get to sit with what Paul McCartney. What am I going to say to Paul right. McCartney? You know what I mean? My wife is... Well, don't tell him that your favorite song is a Beach Boy song. Start there, <laughs> man. Okay? God only knows what I'd be without you. Uh, actually, that's what we would have in common, because I think that's his favorite song as well. Uh, it's funny. Uh, but I got I to say, I, I, I've got no skin in this game other than I love her, and uh, uh, the fact is, is that I could have a long, long, long conversation, and to be able to sit on a beach like that and, and just relax and... Uh, that's that's that would be my choice. So, Brian, I, you may not know this, but I'd, on every episode, I'm always looking for one main takeaway. And you may have just given it to me. I think I have a page and a half of notes in front of me. But right there, <laughs> we, we have been inviting now two dozen people to share who theirs was. Who who do you want to have that conversation with? And frequently it's these huge names, Jesus, yeah. Buddha, St. Paul, yeah. MLK, President Lincoln, whomever. I've never had anyone share a spouse. And oh, that's funny. How unfortunate in some regards uh, that the person that we want to be with the most isn't the person that we're spending the most time with. So, I mean, I don't think it's cheesy. I think it's awesome. I appreciate you Well, you're described, but you're also describing a scene that is such a relaxing, beautiful moment, you know, in, in where you are in life, you know, uh, on a beach and it's a gorgeous sunset and that kind of thing. Who, I, why would I want to mess that up by not, <laughs> you know, by being uptight? I want to be with the most relaxed, wonderful person I can think of that I could talk for hours and hours to. So. It's awesome. Thank you. And uh, what's the best advice you've ever, ever received? Uh, that comes from my wife as well. That, that was to, uh, to do it for the process, to enjoy the process of creating art. Don't, don't do it for any other reason. You have to, if you don't enjoy being in the studio recording a song, then don't do it. Um, that's that was very that was a slap in the face to me in our in the beginning of our relationship i i really i really took that to heart um and now i don't do things that i don't enjoy mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe i've become a little more selfish about it but i have to enjoy it for me to do it because it is about the process life is about we're having a life up here you know that's that's the way it is what would you tell your 20 year old self 
Oh, that's a great. Oh boy. You threw me for that one. I would say, uh, enjoy it. Hmm. Remember, remember to enjoy it. Remember to have a good time. It's not, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be constantly what's next, what's next, what's next. Just relax. You're number one. You're going to be number one. (laughs) Enjoy that time and remember what it felt like because I don't remember it. And I, I, I hardly remember what it felt like because I was so worried about what was coming next Mm. and so worried that I was going to fail. So my final question, and this is the final one that we ask all of our guests. It's question number seven. And the question is, Brian, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that I think uh, that he was uh, he was a, ter- a terrific he was a terrific addition. Uh, to uh, to the creative in the world. Um, something like that. Um, that's important to me. It's important to me to have a legacy of uh, leave back, uh, leave behind me a catalog of, of art that I'm proud of and that, that people can appreciate years, years down the road. So his contribution to the art world was, um, um, was important. Well, that I, I think that would be an amazing way uh, for me to be remembered. <laughs> I think there's absolutely no doubt that you will not be remembered uh, and cataloged in that fashion. Brian Vatter Ark, nice. with the Verve Pipe, solo artist, musician, writer, speaker, father, husband, now my friend. Thank you for being with us on the Live Inspired podcast. John, this was my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, having the conversation with me and having me on. My friends, that was Brian Vander Ark. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, how did you like it? The first time at Live Inspired in the podcast, we've had a singer, songwriter, celebrity baby, uh, a fellow who has fallen not only way down, but hit the bottom and come back up again, swinging, creating, playing, rocking, raising his family, falling in love again massively, not only with life, which is so inspiring, but with his wife. Uh, For me to hear out of any individual from the pages and vaults of history that he could draw from, the person he wants to sit on the bench with, Brian Vander Ark, is his bride. I just think that's so powerful. And I hope someday when someone asks me the question that I have the exact same answer because I, I do feel that way. And I don't know if I've ever articulated it until right now. If you enjoyed hearing Brian and being part of the Live Inspired podcast as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor. Let's continue to spread the good news. Tell your neighbors, ladies and gentlemen you work with, your kids, your parents, your friends, the people you worship with about the Live Inspired podcast. Let them know what's happening here. Let them know that we are trying to play music and share a story to remind people to wake up from accidental living and to begin living inspired. A lot of negativity out there, a lot of darkness. We try to reflect a little bit of hope, possibility, and light. I think we did that again on this podcast, and we appreciate, my friends, your help in pushing us over the 200,000 download mark, which we've already done. That's you. That's your impact. Those, that's you downloading, and that's you sharing. So keep up the great work. Keep telling your friends. Together, we can make a difference, and we are. So for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary. 
And this is your day. Live Inspired.